This is the Greg Scheinman Podcast. The Greg Scheinman Podcast. Brought to you by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. All right, welcome to the Greg Scheinman Podcast. On the show today, Mr. Darren Swaniger, he is the President and Chief Investment Officer for Marquette. Okay, Marquette is a real estate developer. I'm taking it right. Yep. Real estate developer. We are sitting here in the Catalyst, their newest development here in Houston. There's also a Catalyst. The first one is in Chicago. Correct. Also, mm-hmm. and this new brand of apartment upscale, high-end, super, super living that you've now brought brought to Houston, amongst other things that you have done. Darren, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Awesome to have you. Um, first, I'd, I'd like to start off a little bit about your background, kind of tell me a little bit about how you were raised, your education, your family, kind of take us through some of your upbringing. <laughs> well, I have a um, dicey upbringing and educational background, um, but the, uh, I was raised as a pastor's kid. Uh, my dad was an inner city pastor in Chicago, and uh, you know, if you would ask me what my dream job is when I was you know ten years old, I'd have said it was to be a bald headed preacher just like my daddy. So that was kind of the dream, and uh, from there I um, went into Bible college and um, graduated with my bachelor's in theology, and was ordained as a pastor went into the ministry for a couple of years and then absolutely hated it. Uh, I just didn't like the church politics and kind of like the crappy part of the church. And so I actually walked away from my relationship with God, walked away from the church and became a political activist. So I was a political activist in South Africa for um, during the anti-apartheid years, lived in the black townships and uh, literally kind of like the civil rights movement where I was, you know, helping black people board white buses and arrested and, you know, the whole shebang back in the day. So um, when Mandela was released, um, you know, I helped to uh, lobby American corporations to bring down the Separate Amenities Act, which was the core of apartheid and um, so I did some of that. And then I, when I came back to the United States, I did my master's at uh, University of Illinois Chicago in urban planning with a specialization in community development. And uh, the first job I landed was with the largest nonprofit developer in Chicago. And that uh, was called Bethel New Life. It was a faith-based nonprofit that basically closed down crack houses, bought them from the city of Chicago for a buck, and then we developed them into affordable, low-income housing. So that's really where I started um, kind of the path toward real estate development. Uh, so I worked there for a few years and then made the decision to start my own uh, real estate development company. So back in the day, uh, before lofts were cool, I could tie up old warehouses in the city and convert them to lofts, and I could do it very affordably. You know, I again, I grew up very poor, so didn't have a lot of money, so I was doing things on my credit card and cash advances and trying mm-hmm. to get stuff done. The no money down uh, model of real estate development, but uh, it became successful, and I was able to kind of slowly grow. Um, I partnered in... Uh, 97 with uh, a friend of mine who actually was a member at the church that I helped to start when I was a pastor 
and uh, he was a real estate developer and that development became so successful um, he asked me to come on as a partner in his firm which was called the Marquette Companies and so that's uh, the trajectory that I started down and you know still am today let me take you back to what you mentioned about start, starting your first company and, and the lofts and everything there yeah. and kind of the maxing out of the credit cards and, and doing it where did that is kind of confidence, you know, or, or risk-taking kind of mindset come from to say, okay, this is what I'm going to... You hadn't run a company before. You had gotten back from Africa. You kind of picked this maybe path of development to go down. Um, and as you said, you, you grew up poor. So you're out there kind of... You're, you're placing a big bet, you know, on this. Mm-hmm. Where did that kind of mindset come from? What did you think you either knew about business or, or were naive about or just said, this has got to work? Yeah. Like, well... You wouldn't think of a pastor's kid as kind of learning entrepreneurship from his dad, but I did. My dad was actually a church planter, so he actually started new churches from scratch, and he was very kind of cutting-edge, reaching unchurched people who, you know, people who don't like church and creating churches where they would want to go. And so it was very much a model of creating new businesses every time you started new churches. So that was something that I was involved in literally as a kid, you know, going door to door with him, helping to get the word out about the church that was being started. And so um, that was something that was really instilled in me from a young age. Tell me a little bit about your daily routine um, and even also how maybe that's changed kind of over, over the years, a sense of kind of what you're, what you're about. Are you a wake up and meditate guy? Are you an excellent guy? Are you, uh, I'm checking my phone first thing in the morning? You sense of kind of what, the, what your routine is like. So there's no, I have historically not had a set daily routine. It's been pretty crazy. So if you're, for a real estate developer or investor, when you're in the middle of a deal, like things go crazy and you're, you know, living that deal for that period of time. But when you're not in the middle of a deal, things chill out and you can do things differently. So it's kind of this roller coaster effect. Um, But what was happening was I was really ignoring my health for a long time and I gained a lot of weight. And I was, uh, uh, I turned, I just turned 48 and my dad was dying. And, you know, in his final years, he was obese and couldn't get around and, you know, was walking with a walker. He wasn't fit, didn't take care of himself. And I just looked at that as being my future. And I said, I don't want that. So at 48, I made a pretty big commitment. I was in my second marriage. I was 50 pounds overweight and so I made two commitments I said one is I'm going to create a schedule around my workout routine and so I joined uh, what I call CrossFit for old people gym and started working out on a regular basis and dropped the 50 pounds and you know have uh, really made a commitment over the last few years um, to, to maintain that schedule and the second one is to really focus in on my marriage. And so every night that I'm in town, I made a commitment that I'm going to have a glass of wine with my wife. And so we sit down, we have a glass of wine, we catch up on the day, we really connect. Um, you know, and it's uh, those are two commitments that I've made that I've stuck to that have 
completely changed my life because um, it's uh, given me a better quality of life than I could have ever imagined at 50, which is what I'm at uh, right now. And you've kind of blended the family now. As you mentioned, a second second marriage. Do you have children of, of your own? Do so I say that we have a blended family of six, but we really didn't have to blend per se because my kids are older. So I have one son who actually works for Marquette, who's, you know, great in the company. I have another son who is crazy MMA fighter. And then my wife has uh, four kids and two of them are already out of the house. So we really just have uh, 13-year-old twins that are my stepkids that they're beautiful kids um, that, um, you know, are in the house. So they're, I call them maintenance-free because they're just really easy, perfect kids. So, you know, we, we, we don't have a lot of work on the blending side. Of, of What's it like working with your son? You know, at first, um, it was difficult, and I realized, so I had made a rule that my son had to work somewhere else for two years before he could come work for me. Um, Why do you think that was important? Because I wanted him to not take what he had for granted. I wanted him to see what the real world was like before he came into our company. Um, But he graduated with his bachelor's in finance in June of 08, as the world was falling apart. He wanted to go into finance and said, okay, I'm ready to get a job. And I said, dude, half of Manhattan just got laid off. <laughs> You're not going to get a job. I said, get something out of this recession. Go back, get your master's, get your MBA. And then we'll figure it out from there. So he did that, which was awesome. Um, but when he graduated, he still graduated in uh, January of 10. So the world was still a mess and um, high unemployment. And kids coming out of college were not getting hired. So he really worked hard at... Um, trying to get a job and just couldn't land anything. So finally he said, hey, like, give me anything. Just throw me a break and, you know, I I need something. So um, I agreed. So I started him down at the very low level of, you know, the company. He had to be a, uh, you know, for an MBA, he was a property level accountant. Um, But he started from the bottom up. He's now a director of asset management for our company and probably one of our strongest leaders. And really the turning point, uh, so he was a real pain in the butt in the beginning because um, he'd come to my office and, you know, whine and complain about this or that or whatever. And um, finally he came in and he said, hey, would you please mentor me in helping me figure out how to be a stronger leader and be more effective? And so I said, okay, but that'll mean we're going to have like honest conversations. So I, and he agreed. So twice a month we went out to lunch and I'd say, hey, like when you're in a freaking staff meeting, you can't like out that person for being, you know, off on their job or whatever, or screwing up. You can't like publicly like call them out on stuff. That's not, you know, that's not team building or whatever it is. And so we were able to have an honest conversation. She really took, um, I think, the, the advice that I gave him uh, to heart over time and really started implementing changes and really matured rapidly. And he's just been a fantastic leader in our company. I couldn't be more proud. That's, that, that, that's awesome. And on the, on the flip side, see, your other son is extremely different. Yeah. <laughs> does, does that change your... I mean, two siblings raised from a similar situation. One goes one way and one goes the other way. Yeah. What? And, and I've... I, I'm curious because I mean I have two bro- two brothers and I also have two boys. Um, 
and my brothers and I couldn't be more different also, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yet the two boys that my wife and I have, our, our kids, seem to be quite quite similar. But what's what's that like for you? Um, were you parenting? Do you feel you parented them the same way? Or or how did they both choose? Or I'll, go back to, I'll go back to my dad. So when my dad died, the only thing that I said at the funeral was, it was amazing how with six children, how he could have such a different and unique relationship with each child that was customized for that kid's personality. And I really learned that from him, that you can't just impose your view of the world on your kid. Like, kids come in all shapes and sizes, and both of my boys are adopted. My oldest one's from Greece. Okay. My youngest one is from Paraguay, South America. And um, so, you know, they're both very, uh, very different. So, you know, I go to my son's MMA fights, and I encourage him to get certified in training so that he has some fallback plan when he you know, hurts himself or, you know, whatever happens to have some type of a plan for when his body fails him on the MMA side that he has some plan moving forward. But, um, I try to support him and, and try to encourage him and be there for him and want to be, you know, he's an inspiring fighter actually. He's a very impressive fighter. So, uh, you can't help but, you know, pull for him. He's a great, great kid. So you mentioned that they were adopted. Um, how did that decision or choice coming about, obviously, that's that's a big choice, big decision. Yeah, um, and not domestic. They were both you said from foreign countries as, right. as well. Yep. Take take me through that a little bit. I'm really really interested. So my ex couldn't have um, children, and um, it, there was a kind of this moment in time where it was like, okay, if we're going to adopt, we like pick a you know, it's going to take a couple of years to figure out and. Um, once we found this private adoption company that did international adoptions and there was this, you know, it was this moment where they actually FedEx you a picture of this child and say, okay, this child can be, you know, adopted by you and you have 24 hours to decide. So it was like, boom, you have to like pick and figure it out. So that was one of the things we did, you know, early on. Wow. But I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't be more proud of that. Like, um... I always say that I have, you know, six children and I treat them all the same as my own and um, as if they were mine biologically, it doesn't, the biological part doesn't matter, the, you know, it's how you raise them and the bonding and all that stuff. Now you'd mentioned earlier that you had at one point stepped away kind of from the church and and even religion. Um, You've stepped back in? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you're involved with building of churches now as well yeah so um, when I came back into kind of uh, in, I'm a very strong I would describe myself as a very strong spiritual person um, and a believer in God but a very bad religious person and um, and I have a lot of difficulty with the church and church politics and everything that comes with that and so um, I decided to I could I went out there looking for a church and I just didn't connect the mainstream churches and so I was raised this way which just seemed like a pretty simple thing like just go start your own church so um, so I founded a church uh, 20 years ago. And that's called Westridge Community Church in Elgin. And uh, it's really 
creating a safe place for people to explore their faith and to have honest conversations about our skepticism and doubts and failures and to create a place of authenticity um, where you know people can be comfortable talking about their failures and know that they're not going to be judged. And so, and I'm very much protective of that. If I see any judgmentalism in the church, like I tell people, this is not the place for you. <laughs> it's like, so, um, yeah, so it's, it's a very unique place. And how does that correlate philosophically to, to business? Um, whereas you do not want any judgment in, within the church or judgmental attitude, but how is that as it pertains to, to business, which, which can get quite judgmental. You know, you have decisions sure. to make and judgments to make. How do you balance? Both of them um, enhance the other. So like, for instance, one of the core values that I created at Marquette is authenticity. And to be able to be a strong leader in the business world, I think we have to have authentic leadership. And to be an authentic leader, you have to be humble enough to admit your mistakes, to you know, understand that you're not a lone ranger. So I'd rather have a, you know, a synergistic team rather than a great performer, single person who's out there being a lone ranger. I'd rather have you know, a synergistic team getting it done than one person. Um, so I really believe that, and Marquette has become that company um, that um, really, I think... The employees feel like there's an open door policy. They can talk about anything. There's no company politics. And we've been able to eradicate that. On the flip side of the church, what takes the, the one thing that takes the church down, where you have the church politics and you have the ugly, ugliness of the church, is typically the pastor's ego. So every, you know, if you have a pastor that's full-time employed by a church, you can't help but have his ego involved because this is where he derives his sense of worth. So for me, I can derive my sense of worth and my ego. I can get out and building high-rises in downtown Chicago. I don't have to have an ego in the church. And if you can keep the ego out of the church, it helps to create a more authentic community where people can be comfortable you know, just being who they are and not having the church politics and the ugliness of the church and people trying to vie for a position in power. Mm -hmm. How do you screen for that or, or look for that type of synergy or team player or person, you know, within, within your business? Do you have a certain process, uh, a way you kind of weed people out or, or test them or, or look? Because, you know, developing a team, it... it is a skill, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. I always had this this motto, and I don't remember which coach utilized it first or whatever. Where you know, we're not looking for the best players; we're looking for the right, you know, players. I think it was a miracle that hockey movie about the United mm -hmm. States 1980s team. Yeah. And I always thought you know, it get connected because yeah, you could get a bunch of individual superstars, yeah. in here, but if they can't play well together, it, it doesn't work. Yeah. But you could take a bunch of sixes and sevens, you know, and if they work and the synergy is there, well, now it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And everybody's winning. Well, I'm a Chicago guy, so you have the Chicago Bulls model of, you know, Phil Jackson, who had a Michael Jordan and a Dennis Rodman at the same time. Two completely different players and styles, and he had to manage them completely different. And I think the same is true in a corporation just like with kids, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes, all different personalities. And so to be able to manage a team where you can kind of customize your 
management and relationship with the team based on their unique gift base and skills is very challenging. Um, but if you can do it successfully, I think that's what makes the huge difference because then you can bring the team together to work synergistically. But you also have to be the one to lead by example. So I will publicly in our annual meetings when I'm speaking and addressing our, we have about 220 employees. When I have all of our employees gathered together, I'll talk about my own failures and, you know, or the, the times when I've screwed up or the some of my dark thoughts of insecurities and that gives them the permission to be real. And so when that comes from the top down, I think that that's, you know, something that happens as far as, you know, identifying them up front. It's, you know, there's so many employees that we have. I don't even get to hire all of them. So you try to instill that in all of your leaders to be able to be discerning and to look for that sense of authenticity for, and, and I would say without, without a doubt that all of our top leaders all are looking for people who have that sense of authenticity and team building um, skill versus hiring the people with big egos and, you know, the mavericks that are going to, you know, try to run roughshod over everybody. Was that hard for you or is it something that came naturally to be more upfront uh, with with vulnerability or, or with humility or with admitting failure, some or you know, are there steps that you took personally to work on that and being able to get more comfortable disclosing those types of things because it's yeah, it's harder to break down that wall and get in front of a group of people and sure. start talking about what didn't go go well. Yeah, well, I think that with in the case of anything like that, you have defining moments in your life, and for me. Um, I went through a very public divorce while I was still at my church, which was a very controversial thing. And so when you go through something like that publicly and you go through the judgment of it and, you know, the failure of it, it tends to kind of break you, humble you, but it also changes you, right? And it makes you, um, I think that it makes you stronger, you know, uh, Hemingway would say you're stronger in the broken places and I totally buy into that. And so it really started in the church of being able to stand in front of a group of people and say, look, we're not going to have a church where the pastor's put up on a pedestal and looked upon as like this perfect holy roller that can't relate to everybody else. I'm only up here on stage because, you know, I'm leading this thing, but we're all in the same bucket. We're all a bunch of messed up sinners just trying to figure our way down the road, right? And so I think when you kind of are able to have that kind of honest conversation in front of a thousand people on a Sunday morning, you know, who have the potential to judge you, it's not as big a deal than to start talking about that in the other parts of your life. And it spills over to create a really authentic lifestyle between all the worlds, which is not easy to do. <laughs> you know, in addition to, to authenticity, which you, you mentioned a few times, you know, we also toured around the building a little bit and on the wall upstairs uh, you know is the live inspired you know, phrase I have, to have the word inspired tattooed on my arm I have to actually big, big into the word inspired have a company called inspired fitness what is what is inspired or live inspired mean to you I mean by its very definition it means that you're breathing in something you're taking in something right you're inspired and I think that what 
I try to do when I inspire people is help them just to stop and just take in the important parts of life that we tend to gloss over because you can go into the daily grind and just miss life, right? I mean, you can get really caught up in the daily grind. Well, you know, it's like when you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you get 10 miles down the road and you go, how the heck did I get here? I think it's the same thing in life. Like, you know, 10 years can go by and you don't even think about it because you've been so caught up in the grind, just surviving. So really just to inspire people is to help people just stop and just take in and breathe and really have a quality of life that, you know, is different than getting sucked into the daily grind because at the end of the day, it's just not worth it. You know, the closer you get to, you know, 60, 70 and in the elderly years, you go, like, you know, I really want to be able to savor what I'm doing and I don't ever want to slow down but I want to do more that, you know, makes an impact. So my wife and I, we just opened up a foundation, started a foundation in Nicaragua. So we bought a home in Nicaragua. We're very connected to the local community there. And whenever I start feeling all that and feeling like, you know, or I'm upset about this deal or that deal not happening, all I have to do is show up in Nicaragua and be in the midst of my community there of people who are in the third world country making 130 bucks a month. And it gives you a whole different perspective. And uh, so that's some of the most significant work that, you know, we're doing now. But again, it's just a matter of just kind of taking it in and really breathing and creating a quality of life that works. How do you choose Nicaragua for the foundation for what you're doing? Um, I was there in 89. Um, when I came back from South Africa, the Carter Foundation recruited me to lead um, a group over the Huigalpa, Nicaragua, in the whole uh, Sandinista Contra crisis and uh, so I had a natural affinity toward Nicaragua um, but um, I uh, just found this you know at, by, my wife and I were getting ready to buy a beach house in Laguna Beach, California and I went over t- on a trip that is uh, for a nonprofit over to Nicaragua and they put us up they were recruiting us to be donors and I was seriously considering being a donor to this organization. So I was doing some due diligence on it, but they put us up at a beach house in Nicaragua and, you know, kind of started getting involved in the community. And, um, I, uh, as I started doing my due diligence, I just didn't feel as comfortable, um, with this organization. Um, but I fell in love with the beauty of Nicaragua and I called my wife and said, Hey, what if instead of, buying a beach house in Laguna. We buy a beach house in Nicaragua. Quite different. Yeah. Having been to Laguna. (laughs) Instead of uh, making the donation to an organization, why don't we take the money and create a foundation where we do the work ourselves and it'll be tenfold the amount of effectiveness if we can just put this money to work where there's no overhead. We're not taking it. It's all 100% used for what we're doing in the projects. And um, so that's what we did. And... um, so we specialize, uh, we focus in on uh, education, sustainable economic development, microloans, um, and clean water. So, What is your relationship with, with money? You become, obviously, you've become successful. You mentioned at the, at the top that you, really didn't, you didn't come from any. You had a, come from a religious you know, back, church background. You spent all this time in various third world countries. What... what what is your relationship with money now? <laughs> it's a very insightful question. 
Um, I like to say that somebody up in the heavenly realms fucked up and gave somebody money that wasn't supposed to have money because I really don't. I was supposed to be the pastor guy, you know, making 30 grand a year at a church and, you know, doing the pastor thing. Um, so to actually become a person of means has been very humbling for me. Um, but I take it very seriously and I don't, um, I, I think that I'm just a steward of that money. So I'm very much into, uh, contribution and giving back. And so doing the, um, foundation in Nicaragua and being involved in a heavy contributor in my church, um, that, and, and, you know, helping people where we can. So the, um, there's a sense of guilt, I guess, a little bit of being somebody of wealth, uh, having grown up poor and constantly surrounding myself uh, with poverty. Um, and I work very hard at not letting other people know that I'm a person of wealth so that, you know, it never comes across differently. So like any, somebody in my church would have no idea like that I make any money. Um, so it's something that... Um, I believe that you're blessed with and that you have to work at figuring out how are you going to contribute back and not just be somebody who's narcissistic. And you know, I do feed my wine addiction, so I have a beautiful wine cellar, and so that's the one. <laughs> well, if you're going to go through at least a glass a day. Right. Yeah. Maybe two. We're, we're going to move through some wine, okay? We'll get, we'll I really wasn't authentic. It's actually a bottle of wine tonight with my wife. So. Fair, fair enough. We'll, we'll, give you, we'll give you that one. Look, one glass apiece, you're halfway there. Okay, right. this is not. A, might as well not just a, finish it. Not a big stretch. <laughs> What's the wine of choice? Uh, I'm uh, very much into Hell Mountain wines, which is uh, the north side of Napa. Okay. So, yeah. mm -hmm. Beautiful district. You also talked a little bit about mentoring your son when he first came to work mm -hmm. for the company, and then taking him out to lunch and talking to him. You know, you said you know, certainly very very transparently and let's give it to you straight. Who mentored you? You know, I was, um, I don't know what happened to instill this in me, but I understood the need for mentors like off every step of the way. So I literally, I had a mentor early on in ministry. Um, I had a mentor in the political activist world. I had a mentor that helped me start out. I had probably three or four mentors in the business world. So I had multiple mentors. And what I learned was if you're somebody who's willing to ask for help, people really want to help you. And people really want to mentor somebody who really is teachable and who really want to learn. And so, I, you know, I don't have an example. Count. I mean, I could probably sit here and figure it out, but I probably had six or seven strong mentors in my life who have had significant impact on who I've become today. Is there advice you would give to somebody that might either be looking for a mentor or maybe who doesn't have one necessarily built in um, on how to go about finding one. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that most people, if you ask them for help, are willing to actually give you some of their time. I've always also been really, you know, I found even in doing the stuff that I've done, whether it be TV, podcast, where when you reach out to people, 
they're actually willing to open up and talk to you. you yeah. know? And but it's, I think a lot of people are, are fearful or they don't know how to ask for help or how to be vulnerable or how to find, you know, that, that mentor. Yeah. I, I'm a guest lecturer at a local high school and local college. And I talk about this all the time is trading, um, time and money for knowledge. Um, in other words, if you can go out and figure out a way to add value to somebody's life, through, you know, an internship where you can, you know, do something for free for somebody in exchange for them helping you to understand the, you know, career path that they're on or how they got there. So, for instance, um, the big breaking point for me was because I, when I transitioned from ministry into trying to have a professional career, that was a big leap. You know, I had a dicey Bible college background, you know, and so just coming out of, uh, University of Illinois Chicago, my master's program, I didn't have any relationships, no connections. And so there was a guest lecturer who was the deputy commissioner for the Department of Planning for the city of Chicago, who uh, at the time, just as a little point in trivia, worked for Valerie Jarrett, who you know, was Barack Obama's chief of staff. Um, but um, the, uh, he came and spoke at our class and just talked about how there was a hiring freeze, how there was so much work that he couldn't get done. So after class, I said, look, I will volunteer and be your intern for six months unofficially. You don't have to hire me officially as an intern. I said, I will get your dry cleaning. I'll walk your dog. I'll wash your car like for six months. But at the end of six months, I just needed you to hook me up with some of your relationships to and, rec and give me a recommendation for a job. And he did. And so I did that for six months, and he was very honorable. He put me actually on some cool projects, which was uh, the Riverwalk project before the real Riverwalk in Chicago mm -hmm. happened. Um, and then when he um, put a project together for a developer on a, on a streetscape project, he said, by the way, my intern, Darren, comes with it, you know, hire him. So this developer hired me uh, like 13 bucks an hour at the time, and I said, hey, I said, I'll take... 10 bucks an hour if you spend an hour a day with me just teaching me how to do pro formas in real estate development. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, grab a beer and they teach me how to do pro formas and run numbers and, you know, figure out the whole real estate development stuff and explain things that I didn't understand and, and really mentored me like that. So, you know, it was, it was a win-win and there was a value to both parties as a result of that. And so... Are we missing this, like in in schools? A little bit. It's, it's a sidebar, but are we not doing a good enough job of teaching our kids these these types of things? Also, about how relationships are developed, how mentor mentee relationships are developed, how to really get from point point A to point B. I mean, I I, I feel like guys are missing it. You know? Yeah, like, and you know, and it's this the <laughs> I don't mean to sound like the old man. But like, you know, this younger generation just feels checked out. Like they, it feels like they're, when I go and speak to younger crowds and stuff, it just feels like they're kind of, you know, kind of blazed over and um, not really kind of really wanting that sense of, of learning and, you know, yearning for the next thing. It's just kind of like a, you know, whatever happens, happens, whatever the next step is and, you know, we, we had one of my, my stepkids 
Um, you know, I helped him to get his MBA and, you know, instead of going out and working his butt off to go get like a great job, he took the first thing that came along, which was a bank teller position, you know, 12 bucks an hour. I'm like, dude, we spent 150 grand on a freaking masters. <laughs> You're making 12 bucks, 12 bucks an hour as a bank teller because you don't want to do the work to go out and try to really work hard and try to find a good job. Like, cause it's, you know, it's a full-time job to go get a full-time job, mm-hmm. you know? And, yep. Um, so it doesn't feel like there's the same sense of drive and, um, um, desire to learn and to be in development, right. That, you know, our generation had. What's the biggest risk you've taken so far? Mm. I mean, I've had so many risks and I would, I would have to. And then maybe even well, if I if I take it back, your kind of philosophy on risk. You've obviously been a risk taker consistently over the course of, of your career. Um, second thoughts, a look before you leap, or no, we're just going to leap. We're going to put this building here. You know, or I'm going to start that yeah. church. I will say that um, I have always taken educated risks, so I'm not one who like is just going to jump off the cliff and just, you know, do it. But so I always, even in the business world, so I mitigate risk. I work hard at mitigating risk best I can. And, you know, I'm pretty ADD. So when I read operating agreements, you know, I'm reading it for all the different ways I can get screwed. You know, unfortunately, um, when I'm financing deals, I'm doing conservative leverage and really, um, you know, taking a lower percentage in order to mitigate my risk. Were you always like this, or not to, not to cut you off, but or were there some painful lessons along the uh, way? No, there were some painful, <laughs> painful lessons. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, yeah, I've made a lot of mistakes in my career, and a lot of um, a lot of you know the learning curve is high. But especially, I would say in the last ten years, I've been really focused in on. On being able to, to mitigate risk and make sure that you can kind of... We're selling out. units right now. Yeah. Right? No, we're, we're, le- we're leasing units right now. They look like very healthy people as yeah, we're sitting here. Yeah, so... We like the action. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Go um, But, um, yeah, I mean, you're never going to get um, rich off of one deal, but you can certainly lose everything on a deal, like if you're not careful. And um, either reputation or financial... Um, so, um, being able to take less and spread the risk on a lot of different deals so that you can, you know, live another day is I think important in the business world to understand is to be very patient and build wealth over time rather than trying to just get the quick hit, mm-hmm. um, I think is a more beneficial way of, you know, it's kind of like basketball, you know, you, you live or die by the three-point line. You know, you're going to do great or you're going to die. And, you know, that happens all the time. Same thing in business. So you can you can take a lot of risk and make a big hit, but you can also lose big. Um, so I know you're a Chicago guy. I'm, I'm a Michigan man. We, we, right. we lived by the three the other day. So. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you want to be, be known for? You know, I've heard of... of things and and they stand out you know on one side there's your involvement with with the church and you mentioned that nobody there really you know knows what you have per se or much more than that about you and then you have Marquette and 
hundreds of employees here um, and your personal value system between what do you what do you really want to be known for I hope that I will be known as somebody who was a very humble guy who never thought more highly of myself than I am and that I was always seeking to contribute to other people's lives where I could. And um, that's, I, th I think living a life of contribution is, is critical to um, having a life of fulfillment. Like if you wanna, for me, I wake up every day grateful. Like I'm grateful for, I have a spectacular, brilliant wife and I have a spectacular, brilliant job and I have great kids and so how can I freaking like get all depressed about one deal or if something's off or we didn't make as much as we made last year or whatever it is. Like if you can figure out a way to um, really live a life of gratitude where you just want to contribute and to give back, it changes everything. I mean, it, it really changes your entire outlook. When I'm, when I am, I mean, I am at my happiest when I am making a difference in somebody's life in Nicaragua, when I'm building a freaking bathroom for somebody who doesn't have a clean bathroom at their house and I'm gonna build them a bathroom with real plumbing and like a real faucet to wash their hands and like do that or to build a well for a community. Like, those are the things that make me the happiest. Does that make it harder for you like when you're here doing this job? Or does it motivate you to do more even with it, this job so that you can provide more there? Because I guess you're also, maybe there's a point, maybe you've determined this, maybe you haven't, maybe you share it or, or, or not. Like, when there's a time you say, this is enough. Like, I have enough, I've worked hard enough, I could spend all my time you know, yeah. in, in Nicaragua, you know? And if that's where I'm at my happiest, or you're saying, it's a world with my happiest, but I can do more by continuing to do this and grow this so I can go, go there. You know, yeah. kind of where I'm at. Um, my business partner, um, Nick, he's 65, so he has uh, a few years of experience on me. I, um, when I hit this crossroad, because I hit that issue, he really helped to give me a good perspective because he said, look, you know, right now you have connections in the business world and you're making good money. And so at any point something happens in Nicaragua, you can build on one of your relationships, tap on one of your relationships to get something done, or you can just stroke a check for whatever it is that you need done in Nicaragua. You don't have to go out and raise money to do that. And that's a unique situation. And it really gave me a good perspective. And so the way that I view it right now is I'm 50 years old. 80% of my time is spent in the business world. 20% of my time is spent in the nonprofit world. And that's a real ratio. Um, when I'm 60, I'd like to invert that. Where I'm spending 20% of my time um, in the business world, 80% in the nonprofit world. But I don't see myself necessarily retiring at either from either of those worlds so you're a 50 year old guy right and one of the reasons I wanted to come over and, and talk to you because I read a bunch of stuff on CEOs and different executives and most of them don't choose don't swallow the cap by the national as their favorite music <laughs> or, or song okay mm -hmm. 
I go, okay, the guy sounds pretty cool. Okay, one of my favorite bands, one of my favorite songs. Which I tried to get the National for my grand opening here, by the way. But and they were a little out of my price. Little, little out of your. <laughs> they want a Grammy, and now all of a sudden they think that you know they can get whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so let, let's let's talk music a little bit. Do you play anything? Are you? I mean, no. So um, um, where my biggest involvement is in. In music is actually in my church so um, I had this idea of you know there's some churches that are that play on your emotions and there's some churches that are put the pastor up where the Bible is all academic and so I really wanted to create a place that blended um, the emotional and the intellectual and I call it connecting the head and the heart um, Another good band. Good band. <laughs> um, but um, so I actually hired at the church. My first hire was a PhD in percussion who can arrange and do amazing things with uh, music. And he actually attracts musicians from the clubs in Chicago who literally will play a gig on Saturday night, come to our church, sleep on the floor at four in the morning, get up and play at the church because they want to be with this guy. And uh, he's that amazing of a musician. But that being said, you know, so we don't really do a lot of Christian stuff. We do more like a, you know Pink Floyd or Mumford and Sons. Which I think was both on the docket actually. Mumford and Sons was um, sun this last Sunday morning. Um, really? Pink Floyd was the Sunday before that, and it's all about um, kind of taking the narrative and the spoken word as being the thread that weaves it all together, and then music is what creates the emotion and the inspiration behind the message. And so putting that package together is something that I do on a weekly basis with, uh, with my musician, with, uh, with Michael, and something that I really enjoy. So I'm very involved in it from that standpoint, but I can't play. You know, I can kind of hold a tune singing if I had to in a bar, but other than that... <laughs> But if you've got the satellite radio on in the car or something, it's uh, it's on what station? Uh, it's either Spectrum or Lithium. There you go. Okay. Yeah. I was going either Spectrum, Lithium, Alt Nations. Figure somewhere in that in that yeah, dire- in right. that direction, you yeah. know, for you. Um, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but you know, if if you weren't doing this right now, and what what else would you be doing? What else do you want to do? I mean, I think if I had the time, so I have a real passion to create an entire village in Nicaragua. Like that's something that's in the back of my head, trying to figure that out. That has sustainability to it, where they can everything can be solar powered, so they're not paying for electric. It can have its own, you know, source of water and actually have traff, uh, uh, trash pickup, you know, where there's you know managed uh, for that. But um, so if I could do that, I think that would be something interesting. I don't know that I could do anything by itself. Like if I was just doing business or if I was just doing the church or if I was just doing the foundation, I'd probably be bored. But the blending of all of that, you know, together is something that really um, creates excitement for me. And at times it can, you know, put me over capacity and it gets, you know, tight in the margins at times because I'm, when they all hit it once, it's bad, right? So I'm like trying to manage shit and keep it all together, and so that becomes difficult to manage. And my wife gets ticked at me, but um, you know when it when 
you know, when it all works, it's pretty beautiful, harmonious life. And I feel very grateful for the life that I have with all the different aspects. What are, uh, you, must, you must get approached a lot by a lot of different types of people too. Could be people from your your childhood, you know, that know that are coming to you and approaching you. People that work with you, for you, and are around you. What are, what do people tend to get get wrong, you know, about that? You know, I've talked to a, enough people, and they, you know, I got to this level, and all of a sudden, you know, everyone wants me to speak at this place, or everyone wants me to take part in this thing, or they want me to donate to this thing, or they want this or that, or what's and, and I think, as you mentioned earlier, people struggle with, with asking for help or even being vulnerable, but they also have trouble approaching people asking also. Have, have you experienced that too, where either they're approaching, but they're not approaching you maybe you know, correctly, or you have, don't know how to, to handle some, some of that? If, that? if that kind of makes sense of that situation where you know, you're, you're in a successful spot, People tend to want things or approach or come out of the woodwork at all. And I think some intentions are good, some are genuine, some maybe not so much. But I think yeah. people struggle with how to, how to be the approacher and also how to be the either acceptor or even, even rejector in a way of some of that. Yeah, so I would say that I probably turned down 90% of people who try to get to me. And I don't think that's a level of arrogance, I think that's a time management thing. Um, When I find the 10% where I feel that there is an authentic need that I can help meet, I really go out of my way to honor that. And um, so if, you know, there's a guy trying to start a business in my church and I just, and he wants to start a landscaping business or whatever it is, and he wants a little mentoring, I'm happy to stop everything and meet with that guy and have a cup of coffee and help him figure that out. when I don't feel like there's an agenda, you know, there, then I'm happy to drop everything and really give my time to help people and mentor them and, and do what I can do. Um, so I, that puts me in a lot of different positions. So I'd say the one thing that I will drop everything for is because I'm such an unorthodox pastor when people or people in my congregation's family um, who haven't been Christian all their life are on their deathbed and they need somebody to come talk to them, I will drop everything to be in that moment, to be um, for that person where they wouldn't have a relationship with a pastor or a priest or whatever, and I can sit down and, you know, so I've had a lot of those moments that I think are really important where I will, you know, absolutely dedicate time for those moments of crisis. Do you have a favorite phrase, saying, motto, something? I mean, the, you know, I tell my kids um, every morning before they go to school, I say, be brilliant. And, you know, that is not an intellectual thing that's in every aspect of your life. Just be brilliant in the way that you are and who you are just exude brilliance and beauty. Um, and so that's something that I say almost every day. But the, with, we still have two, two uh, at home when I tell them every morning. Let's, let's kind of conclude a little bit around some specifics of, of where we are right now. Okay. With 
we talked about personally, your upbringing, everything, but we're also sitting in this amazing development, which is here called the Catalyst. Um, summarize what you're what you're doing with the Catalyst, this brand. It's the second project. Um, again, what what do you want the Catalyst to be? What was the inspiration behind bringing it here? You know, and what and what you're doing with it, and and Mar- Marquette in general, where, yeah. where you guys are going. So the whole idea behind it is um, um, I don't want to be a developer who's building a commodity, but um, I'm really wanting to create a lifestyle. And the whole idea behind Catalyst started in the West Loop of Chicago, so before the West Loop was cool. Um, I you know, launched the Catalyst project, which really was a catalyst to you know the rest of the West Loop developing, and um, I like being in emerging what I call emerging submarkets. So they're transitioning; they're not you know mature. It's not the place where it's not the Galleria where everybody wants to live. Downtown Houston, you know, when I first put this deal under contract with this whole city block, it was a sea of surface parking lots, and there wasn't much down here. And so, really, the idea of being able to create be part of the creation of a downtown, which Houston has never had, was very exciting to me. Um, Houston has just never had this kind of heart of the city that I think it's lacked. And so as a result of that, it's the fourth largest city in America, and it's never really been taken seriously by the rest of the world, primarily because it doesn't have that sense of urban core like Manhattan or Chicago or Boston. Um, And so... The idea of being able to be part of the creation of an urban core was something that was is really exciting to me. Um, the The pace at which downtown Houston has matured has exceeded my expectation, and you know the the number of restaurants and bars and the way the city has made a commitment to you know places like the Discovery Green and those kinds of things. Um, It's been awesome to be able to see downtown Houston evolve at such a rapid rate so that now that we're, you know, finally opening, you know, we can say, hey, this is a real walkable community. You can, you know, walk across the street to some of the greatest restaurants in Houston. You can walk one block and go catch, you know, the World Series champions play baseball. You can pretty much watch it from the roof. Yeah. <laughs> you can pretty much watch it from the roof. It looks right down into the park. Um, so, um, you know, it really has been a catalyst for this neighborhood, and that really is the impetus of the name. And so I uh, just broke ground on a, you know, a, what I hope to be another catalyst uh, in the Fulton Market District of Chicago, uh, which is where Google is and McDonald's National Headquarters is. So, again, it's more of that emerging uh, sub-market where it's not a place where everybody knows it's a place that's becoming and so I always want what I'm creating here is a lifestyle to be a catalyst of people to be part of this downtown experience Darren Sloniger thank you very much for being on the Greg Shaman podcast today really enjoyed it um, if you're in the Houston or Chicago area definitely check out the Catalyst thank you for being part of the show today Catalyst.live. Catalyst.live. Go to it. Check it out. Thank you. Thanks.
The Greg Scheinman Podcast was presented by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. For more information, visit innsgroup.net.